Hello, my name is Abby Turner, and today's gathering scripture comes from Matthew 26, verse 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, and I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray, so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away, unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Hey, Grace242. This past January, I attended ECO's yearly National Gathering Conference. And so getting ready for the flight, I loaded my iPad up with movies. And one of those movies is a classic that I've never seen before. And when I tell you the movie, you're going to say, how have you never seen this before, Bill? I watched Braveheart, which came out in 1995 and stars Mel Gibson as Sir William Wallace, the Scottish revolutionary who led the Scots to fight England for their freedom in the late 1200s. Toward the end of the movie, Wallace is captured by Britain and held in prison. Appearing before Britain's court, Wallace is given a choice. Confess his treason and he will receive a quick death. Deny and he will be tortured. Wallace remains silent. The scene transitions to prison where Wallace remains confident, but at the same time anguishes about his upcoming torturous death. He prays, I'm so afraid. Give me the strength to die well. This part of the movie reminds me of Jesus, who spent the night before his own torturous death, agonizing in prayer. We've been walking through the events of Holy Week in our series, Holy Week Timeline. And just by way of brief review, on Sunday, Jesus triumphantly rides into Jerusalem. And then on Monday, Jesus clears out the temple. On Tuesday, Jesus teaches in the temple, and then he goes out to teach on the Mount of Olives. The Gospel writers don't assign any specific events to Wednesday, so Wednesday is often called Silent Wednesday. Which brings us to Thursday, where Jesus has his famous Last Supper meal in the upper room with his disciples. And then they go out to this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the foot of the Mount of Olives, if you look at the map here. And it's in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus agonizes in prayer. Let's pick up the narrative in Matthew 26, and we'll read verses 36 to 38. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
Now, something you need to understand about Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane right off the bat is this. Jesus has known what tomorrow holds for him for a long time. We know that Jesus knew what tomorrow would hold for him earlier in his ministry when he was with his disciples in Galilee. Look at Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 31. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. So Jesus has known what tomorrow holds for him since he was with his disciples in Galilee earlier in his ministry. But he has known about this plan for even way longer than that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 20. God chose Jesus as your ransom long before the world began, but he has now revealed him to you in these last days. God chose Jesus as a ransom before the world began, is what Peter tells us. And so Jesus has known about the plan to go to the cross. He has known that he must suffer and die since before the world began. So he has known about this plan for a really long time. When I was a kid, I was absolutely terrible with pokes and shots and blood draws and things that caused pain at the doctor. And so my parents and I figured out that it was better for me if I didn't know ahead of time about a poke or a shock at the doctor. Because if I knew about it ahead of time, I would just sit there and perseverate on it and dread it and just get all worked up about it. Whereas if I didn't know about it ahead of time, then it was a lot easier. For instance, I remember this one time my mom told me, your sister has a doctor's appointment. And so she brought my sister Anna and I to the doctor. And the nurse comes out and says, Annalise and William. And my head snapped to my mom, and all of a sudden I realized, oh no, <laughs> it's a doctor's appointment where I'm going to get poked. But that was okay, because my mom knew that I didn't want to know ahead of time. Because now I only have to dread a shot for about five minutes, instead of dreading it for days upon days. And I think about how Jesus has known about this excruciating pain and suffering and torture that he has to undergo, but he's known about it since before the world was created. That's a long time to know about the plan to go to the cross. And this is the first thing we ought to notice about this event. Look at how Jesus feels knowing what's to come the following day. Go back to our scripture reading. Let's look at Matthew 26, and we're going to read verses 37 and 38. Jesus took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Well, verse 37 says Jesus is anguished and distressed. And in verse 38, Jesus says he's crushed under the grief. And do you see how relatable he is in this moment, that he is anguished and distressed? Because any human would be anguished and distressed being in Jesus' shoes. I think about the depiction of William Wallace in the movie where he praised, God, I'm so afraid about what's to come. Any human facing torture and death would be anguished and distressed. And so this is the first thing I think we ought to notice about these events is Jesus' humanness. That as a human, as one of us, he feels. 
and he feels the anguish and the distress and he's crushed under the weight of the grief of knowing what is to come tomorrow. That from eternity past until now, now the moment is finally here where he must undergo this pain, this torture, this excruciating death. And it's in that humanness that Jesus says the next thing. Look at verse 39. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And I think we also see Jesus' humanness in this request of his Father, that he is so anguished and distressed and crushed to the point of grief, knowing from eternity past that now the moment is upon him that he asks the Father, Dad, if there's some other way to accomplish salvation where I don't have to go to the cross and undergo all this pain, can you please give me another way? But still I defer to you, Father. Still not my will be done, but your will be done. But it's so human of Jesus to ask his Father, is there some other way of accomplishing salvation, Father. Kids, this is where I think the story really impacts you. So if you're in elementary school, or if you're in middle school, or if you're in high school, I think this is something that is very relatable for you today. And that is, Jesus knows what it's like to be in your shoes. How many of you have ever had something that you knew you had to do, but you really didn't want to do it? How many of you have ever had something that you dreaded? For me, it was often like a piano recital or performing. It's like, yes, I know I have to do this, but I really don't want to. I'm nervous as all get out. Is there some way I can get out of this? I remember one time as a kid, I had a piano recital, and I remember sitting in the pew of the church where the recital was, actually starting to think, like, maybe if I run out of the church, I won't have to play my piece. And here we see Jesus knowing he has to go to the cross, but he asks his father, is there some other way that I don't have to undergo this pain? So Jesus, kids, knows what it's like to have to do something that you really don't want to do. Maybe some of you have had a test like the ACT or something, high school students, that you know you have to do it, but you really don't want to do it. Maybe some of you kids have actually undergone surgery and you know you have to do it, but you really don't want to do it. Maybe some of you students have had to like read a speech or something at a school program and you know it's an honor, you know that people want to hear you give your speech, but you really don't want to do it. How many of you kids have ever been in a situation where you know you need to do this, but you really don't want to do it? And here is Jesus who knows what it's like to be exactly you. There's something he really doesn't want to do. Go to the cross and die. But he knows he has to do it. The first thing to notice about today's passage is Jesus' humanness. We'll now go back to Matthew 26 and let's read verses 39, 42, and 44. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground praying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My Father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. So three times Jesus, in his prayers, asks his Father, 
is there another way? Could there be another way? But three times Jesus says, not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. Ultimately, I'm going to do what you want me to do. Not my way, but your way, God. And this is the second thing we ought to notice about this event, is Jesus' faithfulness. That he was faithful to the Father's will. He was faithful to go to the cross, to undergo the pain, to undergo the torture, and to ultimately die at the hands of the Jewish authorities and the Romans. That Jesus is faithful to the Father's will. We see his humanness in asking the Father if there could be another way, but we see his faithfulness in each time saying, not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. William Wallace was given the chance to disavow his freedom movement that he started and led, and he did not. He remained silent, which meant for him a torturous death, but he was faithful to his freedom movement until the end. In the same way, Jesus is faithful to the Father's will all the way up unto death. And again, remember, Jesus has known about this plan from eternity past. And so even knowing about it all this time, he is still faithful to go to the cross in the end. Sometimes when I come to communion table, I like to think about Jesus' faithfulness. And it's when I think about his faithfulness that I almost view communion like a toast to the one who was faithful, like I'm lifting my cup to my faithful king who knew what Friday held for him, who knew the cup of suffering that was presented to him that he had to drink. And in the Garden of Eden, he decides, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And it's because he says, your will be done, Father, that I'm saved. Because when I receive that communion cup, and I remember that Jesus faithfully went to the cross, and shed that blood for me, I know full well when I have that cup that if he did not shed that blood, that if he did not go to that cross, then I'm not saved. Then I have no hope, that I have no eternity with Jesus, that I am bound for hell for eternity. If he doesn't drink that cup, if he doesn't go through with the pain and the death, I have no salvation. I have no hope. This is why when I come to communion and I got that cup, I'm pumping it, man, because I'm like, he knew what was in store for him from eternity past. And he went to that cross anyway. And it's like, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness to do the hard thing that I could never do. Thank you for going to that cross. In Matthew chapter 20, the mother of the disciples, James and John, approaches Jesus. And she, rather presumptuously, asks Jesus if James and John, her boys, can occupy seats of honor at Jesus' throne side. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking with that. Only the Father can decide that. And sometimes I like to imagine Jesus thinking, as this mother is asking him these questions, I like to imagine him thinking, you way out of line, woman! In fact, you don't even know how far out of line you is. That question is crazy. And it's crazy because he is the one who drank the cup of suffering. He even says, can you drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? No, the honor position is not for James and John. 
The honor position is for Jesus himself. The Father determines, but the Father gives it to his Son, Jesus, because Jesus is the one who drank the cup of suffering. He was handed a goblet of torture and death for crimes he did not commit. And he drained the goblet. He drank the cup of suffering. We ought to notice Jesus' faithfulness as the one who drinks the cup of suffering for crimes he did not commit. Now I want us to contrast Jesus' behavior from the disciples' behavior in Gethsemane. While Jesus is praying and agonizing with his Father, let's look at what the disciples are doing. Go back to Matthew chapter 26, and we'll read verses 40, 43, and 45. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So three times he goes to be with his father. And three times he comes back to find the disciples asleep. When I was at First Presbyterian Oosburg, their sanctuary had a stained glass window depicting Jesus in Gethsemane. But tucked away in the window, if you looked close enough, was a depiction of the disciples sleeping in the garden. Now remember that Jesus is pulling an all-nighter here before his day of agony. Because he sees these hours as so precious that he needs to spend them with his Father. He knows the best preparation for what he must face tomorrow is this constant seeking of his Father's presence. So while Jesus is faithfully seeking his Father, preparing himself for this day of agony that's finally here, his disciples are falling asleep, which is beginning a pattern that we're seeing throughout these crucifixion events. Because once Jesus' betrayers come and arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples will desert him, Peter will deny him three times. They won't even be by him while he's being crucified. They'll watch from a distance. They'll all run away. And so the disciples are sleeping, denying, and deserting, while Jesus is faithfully undergoing the plan that he and the Father hatched before the foundation of the world. So the disciples are unfaithful, and Jesus is faithful. And so the third thing we ought to notice about this event is the disciples' unfaithfulness. Jesus is faithful, but the disciples are unfaithful. Jesus is faithful, and we are unfaithful. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 says, If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. I want us to take a moment to consider our unfaithfulness in the light of Jesus' faithfulness. He was faithful to go to the cross so that we could be saved. But yet, how often do we return the faithfulness of Jesus with unfaithfulness, with sin, with rebellion, with hard-heartedness? I mean, is the Holy Spirit potentially needling you on something in your life, but you're intentionally ignoring Him because it's just easier to sleep through the Holy Spirit than it is to actually listen to what He's calling you to? Perhaps he's calling you to reprioritize your life 
and spend less time on frivolous things and more time on eternal things. But it's just way easier to ignore that or sleep through it because if you were to act upon that prompting, that would mean a big change in your life that you don't want to make right now. Or maybe he's been placing his finger on character flaws or areas that he wants to work on in your life. But it's easier for you to blame those flaws on other people and other people's actions than it is to take an honest look at yourself and say, what are the things I need to repent of? What is my contribution to this unhealth? How do I work with the way that God has designed me to be more like Him, more conformed to His image? Or maybe God just wants something from you. Sadly, maybe you really don't give God much of any time at all. If you're giving God time, maybe it's Sunday morning, but beyond that, there's not much time that God gets. And maybe He's saying, can you please just come meet with me? I just want to be with you, beloved daughter or son. And it's just easy to sleep on that because you're like, yeah, I got other things to do. I got other things that are more important. How are we unfaithful? Despite the fact that Jesus has been so faithful to save us. How are we in sin and in rebellion and in error? Or how are we unfaithful to give in to temptation? How are we unfaithful to seed the battle, to just give up and say, eh, probably going to happen anyway. In fact, Jesus talks to Peter about this. Look at what he says in Matthew 26, verses 40 and 41. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Could you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Jesus says, Peter, if you're sleeping when temptation comes, then you've lost the battle already. What are the ways that Satan likes to bait you? What are the ways that Satan likes to get at you? What are the temptations that you routinely fall victim to? And are you doing anything to guard against that unfaithfulness? Are you doing anything to guard against those temptations? Or are you sleeping on it? Because if you're sleeping on it, you've already seeded the battle. You've already lost. You've already decided upon unfaithfulness. Are you sleeping on your unfaithfulness? Or are you saying, God, I don't want to be unfaithful. I want to be faithful. Help me be faithful. Help me be on my guard. Help me put safeguards in place so that it's less likely that I A, either get tempted or B, give in to temptation. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than we can stand. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. If you take time to discuss this message in your house church today, I want you to ask yourselves the question, how have I been unfaithful? Realizing that Jesus has been faithful to me to save me, how have I returned unfaithfulness to Him? Maybe I've given myself too much opportunity to be tempted. Maybe I've been sleeping like the disciples on these things. Maybe I have not been alert. Or maybe I've been intentionally falling asleep when the Holy Spirit begins needling me about something. So think about the ways you've been unfaithful and then begin to seek God's help to become faithful. Let's close this message out with a prayer. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we praise you for drinking our cup of suffering 
that you knew from eternity past that you would go to the cross and as you agonized in Gethsemane, you knew all the pain and suffering that were to come the following day. And you went through with the plan anyway. You were faithful to the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that it is your faithfulness that atones for our unfaithfulness. We praise you, Jesus, for being the one who knew the cross was coming and went willingly to it. Amen. Happy Easter, Grace 242. Love you.